This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hello and welcome to episode 157, 157 of What Most People Think. Now, I hope you're having a good week. To be honest, I have no idea what's happening in the news right now because I am away on holiday. I am away. I'm I'm in a beefer, mate. I'm in a beefer. And you're going to ask Jeff, are you, are you doing the tragic fucking middle-aged thing of going, yes, I am going. I'm going to go to a club. I'm going to go to a daytime club, though, because I'm not I'm not an idiot. few Sambucas, that'll be me. Uh, you know, probably probably need to take out a fucking mortgage to get a vodka and diet coke but um but yeah and I'll, you know the thing about people often think about old people like me being in nightclubs is, is they think oh the young people must hate it you gotta be joking when the young people see old people they're like i can still do this for another 30 years right so anyway that sounded desperate didn't it like i, I sort of needed to, to believe that but what i thought was is i i don't want to leave people look first up the Patreon exists. And let's let's not forget of all the other benefits and stuff, which I will be talking about shortly for a change, is the purpose of the Patreon initially was to keep the podcast weekly and ad-free. Those are the two founding principles of the Patreon. Now, it does strike me that a lot of the rest of you that are listening to this, you're benefiting from that. I don't know if they're... But the Patreon, they're, they're good people. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're benevolent people. They're like those people that just send fucking loads of money to... Uh, an old school. They don't know if the kids in that school sheds or drug dealers, but they send scholarship money. Um, does that still exist? Old boys clubs? It all sounds a bit noncy these days, that sort of thing, doesn't it? But um, but yeah, I just wanted to make sure there's a podcast up. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why is that I have a lot of podcasts I love and they're part of our routine, aren't they? You go, right, I listen to that on either a Wednesday or a Thursday when I walk the dog or, or I'm gonna got a, got a drive coming up, I'll listen to that. And I'm fucking furious when it's not there. So primarily, this is to uphold my, my contract with the patrons, but also is that, uh, I don't know, I, just, I think I'm a bit obsessed. My wife will tell you about this podcast, right? I have this weird thing where once it gets around the time that I've got to do the podcast, I, I can't relax until it's out. <laughs> a lot of people, they just record them, they leave them hanging around, they edit it in a couple of weeks. I literally, until it's done... Do you know what I mean? I, I I just can't I can't relax. It feels like there's a fire in my mind. I've got to put it out. Um, but yes. Yeah, so what I've done this week is I I don't know what Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak have done at this point. Do you know what I mean? Rishi, he was getting stick for wearing a three and a half grand suit. Is he now wearing one from Matalan to try and be a man of the people? We know what he's like. Or has he gone the other way? I would say go the other way. Double down. Double down. Go seven grand suit in your face. Truss. Have some of that. 
Yeah, just just lean into it, Rishi. That that would be my advice. These people are never going to stop attacking you for your wealth. And I am not someone that has a problem with somebody having done well for themselves. I don't give a shit in the same way I don't give a shit if you were poor. I just want people that are good at their job. So, you know, and, and Liz Trust, she might have gone the other way. She was getting heat for her £4.50 earrings from Claire's accessories, right? She might have gone fucking all blinged out now. Uh, I don't even know. This is a problem. I'm gone. I've, I've got no references. What, who makes expensive earrings? You know, I, well, I, I tell you, it's my wife's birthday coming up, so I'll probably, I'm probably going to find out. That is a, that is a great, that is a great default gift, isn't it? Like, how many women just get really like jewelry that's a lot more expensive than it would have otherwise been because their bloke simply wasn't fucking organised enough. Okay, so because I'm doing this ahead of time, I don't know who the new patrons are, but I thought, why not go through? and maybe do some shouts out for people who have been patrons for a long time. So I'm going right back to, right back to the beginning. My first ever patron, Maria Rushton. You know what they say, your first love. Your first love is always the most important, Maria. And, and, you, and you're still there, Maria, for me. Still there after all this time. And going, Ian Wood, Woodsy. Yeah, just, it's just a golfer's name, isn't it? Old Freewood, Ian Wood. That sounds offensive. I don't know, maybe you're a six-wood or a seven-wood. That would be... Sort of in line with the average, wouldn't it? David Price, Pricey, who's now a board member. Oh, I'm getting emotional. Reno, Neil, Neil Wakefield, I'm seeing, who's, who's a board member now. Wilbur, did I even give Wilbur a shout out? I seem to remember that. Ian McKinney, Nathan Hadley, David Domain, James Roger. It sounds like I'm <laughs> reading out the names of people who died at 9 11, like Bono did at that weird Super Bowl. But um, you, you are, uh, I'm forever in your gratitude. And it is interesting, just to remember at this point that this started because. Lockdown happened, uh, people wanted something that kept them connected with a certain point of view, and, and I think it was a mutual... Why am I getting so fucking emotional, Jeff? You're the only one who feels uh, this profoundly about it. So I, I'll do that again at some point. I'll go back to the original patrons, and it just is so kind of you to still be there um, after all this time. Of course, whenever I do uh, an episode of What Most People Think, whether it's one of these... Uh, one of these bit bit non-specific, uh, or or whether it's a Patreon-only episode, we have to have uh, a thank you and a fuck you. So I'm going to do a thank you to Tipping Point. I was on Tipping Point Lucky Stars a couple of weeks ago with Ben Shepherd hosting it, and I was on with uh, Bonnie Langford and Matt Matt Dawson, my old celebrity chums there. And uh, I think, you know, I can say, if you haven't watched it now, you're probably not going to watch it, but I, I won, uh, I got through to the end, and I had about £7,700. Uh, and the, the you know the token that comes out? It was quite close to the edge, but I just thought it was a lot of money to risk. And then when they did the play-on thing, luckily it didn't fall, so I was sort of vindicated in my decision. But uh, it, is, it is interesting doing shows like that, the fucking nerves you have, right, when you do a TV quiz thing, because you just sort of... You rock up and you go, oh, there's no pressure, you know what I mean? It's not like a comedy gig or a panel show record, you know, just a bit of fun. And then you go, oh, yeah, I could I could look really stupid here. <laughs> I could look really stupid, you know what I mean? You, you might be you might be that person on the viral clip or, you know, on It'll Be All Right on the Night. God, jeez, that's a fucking old reference, Jeff. Who does, does that show even go anymore? Dennis Norden, is he still alive? Or didn't David Walliams? Do a reboot. Yeah, yeah. He'd be just as proficient, if not more so, than Dennis Norden with using phrases like, if you like cock-ups. God, how he laughed in the 80s on a Sunday night watching that. He said cock-up. He's talking about cocks up over the, uh, the fanny or the arse. Um, and, uh, but I, I did have my own minor moment like that, uh, which was I was talking, Ben Shepard was doing a question 
I'm gonna always I'm gonna always say both his names. Ben Shepard. Um, he's doing a question about cutlery or something, and it said which uh, piece of cutlery goes above the plate, and the options were like knife, fork, and des- dessert spoon. I still almost get it wrong. I read dessert spoon, but I said, oh, I think everybody at home will currently be screaming desert spoon. And you go to my Twitter or Ben Shepard's Twitter, and you'll see the clip if you scroll down. And he said, "Will they be? Will they be shouting Desert Spoon, Jeff, or, or Dessert Spoon?" And I just thought, "I've a fucking, I've done a stupid, I've done a stupid." Uh, and it's always the risk, man, because you go there and you think, "I could, I've just got to do quizzing." But the the risk for TV quizzes is that you could look stupid and unfunny. And it is, it's always amazes me that there were people. There wasn't many, but I've had this before when I've done these these. T- and bear in mind, you're trying to win money for charity. Bear in mind that I was trying to win money for a stillbirth charity, having gone through that myself. Oh, admittedly, the people didn't know that at the beginning, in fairness. But it is still for charity. And, and you get these people, they, they always like at ITV and, you know, or the channel, and they go, oh, just saw that idiot Tory Norcott there. Uh, we'll be turning over now, so you've lost one customer. Okay, first things first, I don't believe you did turn over, all right? I don't believe you did, because hating me is the most you ever feel alive, right? So I just love the idea that they, they carried on watching, hoping for me to fail at some point. It's not a, it's not a good form of energy, let's be honest, uh, that I'm getting from this, but uh, it is quite gratifying. And, and the other reason that I think that they're doing it is that I think that they honestly think that the big wigs at ITV. I mean, like I say, I don't react to these people, but sometimes I'm tempted to just tweet a comment reply going, oh, thanks very much. I just had a call from the big ITV boss and he said he saw your tweet and I'm never allowed to do any telly again. Because let's be honest, deep down, that's what these pricks are thinking. They, they think that there's an outside chance, but I can't let them know. I've seen it. Never let them know you're hurt. This Sounds a bit like toxic, toxic masculinity, Jeff. Yeah, maybe it is. Uh, and fuck you. And now this is going to go slightly against established wisdom here. Is the fuck you is against my dog. Okay. Some of you would have heard her bark. I've got two dogs. I've got an older dog, an 11-year-old dog and a one-year-old. And yes, probably that wasn't the kindest thing to do to an 11-year-old dog, right? But she was a prick long before this. Now, I know, I know it's sacrilege to talk about dogs in this way. A lot of people say, oh, we don't deserve dogs. Okay, you haven't met my dog, all right? Now, I love her. Let's get this clear. I, I take care of what she needs. I walk her twice a day, minimum 30 minutes each time, okay? She's a well-exercised dog at her age. She has everything she needs, but she is a prick, okay? Now, if you're going to immediately default to this dog owner thing of going, well, dogs aren't born pricks, they're created. And so it's my fault, okay? That is victim blaming. That you, you tell me some people aren't born pricks, all right? <laughs> You've seen them. She's just... She's just belligerent. She has been ever since she was a puppy. She never would fetch and drop, ever. We try for ages with her. She just won't fetch and drop, you know? Sometimes we'll be out walking and, and she'll just try and eat something fucking ridiculous. And the lockjaw that she does, like, she knows I'm going to win in the end because I have to get it out of her because otherwise she's going to be sick. But the, the belligerence on her face is unbelievable. And the other night, right... I was, uh, I, was, I was on my own in the house because my wife went away on holiday first. And uh, I was sleeping in the uh, the spare room because it was a bit cooler. And if I'm honest, I felt a bit lonely and I wanted to be on the, fo- <laughs> the, the, the floor with the TV in it. Uh, you know, anyway, that's a bit sad. But um, I, I'd sort of moved this trestle table to block getting in because when she goes under the bed, she's fucking noisy as you like. And um, I left a little gap and I could see her looking at me through the gap, <laughs> just staring me out. I said, but, you, but I was like, Lily, if you come under the bed, you're just going to, fuck, you'll be unsettled all night. And eventually I let her in. 
And this is my problem, right? She doesn't love me that boy. I think she. I think it's the same for both of us. We both love each other, but we don't like each other, right? Whereas my wife, who did the puppy stuff, right, and was like, who's a bit? Does all the stupid voices, right? See the way she lights up when my wife comes in the room. All right, like when we're going on on holiday, if we're going to be out for the day, you know, if I know that we're leaving early, I'll get up like five a.m. I'll do a one-hour walk with her. Where's the gratitude? <laughs> This may be one of the saddest, saddest middle-aged things I've ever said. Uh, but yeah, email what most people think uk at gmail.com. Is there anybody else in a love-hate relationship uh, with their dog? Okay, so you might be wondering, and I should have mentioned this before, what the fuck is this uh, week's podcast going to be about? Well, uh, I have decided for the, for the third and final time I'm putting a free audiobook chapter in. Because if you have... I know the numbers of people that listen to this podcast... And I know the amount of books slash audiobooks slash Kindles that I've sold. So there are still some of you out there. And it is it is on, there are some good offers out there at the moment. So I thought I'd, I'd include the chapter that I did uh, in the book about Brexit. Part of the reason for that is where at the time of recording, there was all that stuff. There's all the stuff about, you know, people saying, well, the trouble at the ports is all 100% because of Brexit. Or Can you hear that in the background? That's my dog. It's a fucking magic trick. I try and do the podcast. She starts barking. Anyway, so... I thought, let's, let's just do the chapter from the book about Brexit, because I think now we've moved so far on in terms of all of our arguments, uh, leave and remain. It just, just just what my experience uh, was of that day and, you know, having voted leave, waking up and being, you know, surprised like everybody else, concerned like everybody else. You know, like it didn't mean that if you voted leave that you, you weren't without apprehensions about the future or indeed didn't think that there would be problems in the short to medium term as we are, we are seeing. But uh, So I'm going to include that chapter. I hope you enjoy it. I think it is chapter 11 from Where Did I Go Right? Uh, it's Brexit. The chapter, I think, is called Brexit 1 AD. And I'll be, uh, I'll be jumping back in at the end uh, just to do a quick letter and say goodbye. Chapter 11. Brexit 1 AD. It's 24th of June 2016, the day of the Brexit result. Britain has voted by a massive or tiny majority, depending how you see these things, to leave the EU. I'm sitting at the offices of a TV production company writing for a panel show on Channel 5 and wondering if I might have booby-trapped my own career. Virtually the whole comedy industry voted against this thing, and here I am, at the heart of it, a cultural splinter cell trying to keep a low profile. The tantrums after 2015 were nothing compared to this. Back then, the Liberal left spat the dummy. Now they set fire to their pram. I hope they don't set fire to mine. A bit of context. I've been blessed with a gorgeous and brilliant son who is now three months old. If turning 30 focused my mind, having an actual child and being the main breadwinner has made me put on a pair of blinkers and stare at a sign marked MONEY! It's not just that he costs money. I'm acutely aware that as a boy, he will one day assess me in the way only sons of fathers and daughters of mothers tend to. I need to really do something. As the referendum came into view, I went public with my intention to vote leave. If my baby boy could have spoken at the time, he might have said, do something, but maybe not that. This time, my vote was delivered in an actual polling booth. I'd got up early to vote before heading into London. We now live in a small town in Cambridgeshire. You might say, Cambridgeshire in invisible quotation marks, just as people once said Wimbledon. But where I live is a fairly standard English town. Out here in the sticks, voting leave didn't seem like a particularly big deal. However, in fairness, neither does fox hunting. 
The day of the vote had played out like many prologues to an upset and defeat for the Liberal left, with the cruel tonic of false hope. As the hours ticked by, a growing certainty had taken hold that Remain would win. That outcome wouldn't have surprised me. I hoped it would at least be reasonably close to give the EU cause to reflect on its dick-waving faith in its own immutability. It was natural to suspect the incumbents would swing it. Indeed, how could Leave win? Remain had the full force of the government. Remain had dropped a leaflet into every home in Britain. Though one day we'd be led to believe that was nowhere near as persuasive as a Russian bot shitposting on Twitter. Remain had all the celebrities. Remain had David Bloody Beckham, a man who, having shown true radical instincts with his hair, was apparently incredibly conservative when it came to continued membership of a supranational economic trading bloc. Remain had all the experts, apparently. Economists were fated as oracles, even though their recent strike rate had been nothing to be proud of. As my mate, a broker, said to me of financial institutions, most of the financial sector are like GPs. We can only diagnose things for certain once they've already happened, and even then we're not entirely sure. The FTSE had a big rally as expectations of a Remain win swept through the city. The same Tory-hating lefties who'd spent the last years pouring scorn on those motivated by money were now sharing screenshots of the pound rising against the dollar, like currency markets had suddenly become the nation's sole moral compass. The same artists who were supposed to be led by a maverick spirit were hailing the likely continuity of the neoliberal status quo. Many of the people who declared themselves socialists were loosening the champagne corks for the ongoing membership of a political body with strict rules on state aid. And here I was, a conservative, and we're supposed to sacrifice everything to the gods of economic stability, betting the family estate on the feeling that somehow Britain would be okay. Whatever the result was, one thing was clear, the Brexit vote had thrown a hand grenade into the old political certainties. The first I knew of the result was when I woke around 5am. I'd been staying in a hotel as I had a busy writing job on in town. The TV had been on all night and I became loosely aware of the moist sounds of David Cameron's dribbly voice drifting through the chintzy haze of the hotel room. His face was obscured by a sunbeam which had crept through the curtain and nudged me awake. I caught something about him thinking it would not be right for him to be the captain. I opened my eyes a bit wider to take in the bar at the bottom of the screen which was variously reading, Britain votes to leave the EU, pound crashes, everything will be shit now. I hopped out of bed. There are a lot of cliches which real life never fully delivers on, but I really did hop, like a rabbit who'd had mustard smeared on his arse. I, like everyone, had gone to bed thinking Remain would win, maybe gotten a little used to the idea. I felt that Britain would be better off outside the EU in the medium to long term, but could see too that continuity would also bring benefits. At the very least, it would have resolved the question. Either way, this was Britain, and I was certain that if it had gone the other way, the Remain side would be equally magnanimous. My first thought upon hearing the result wasn't about the comedy industry or the jeopardy my career might be in, that would come later. It was whether my wife knew about the result. I rang her to see if she was reeling or hated me because she had voted Remain. The fact we voted differently often gets a surprised reaction from liberal middle-class types. It's another piece of unconscious bias. They presume a guy like me tells his wife how to vote just after he's informed her what time dinner should be on the table. Thankfully, she has a mind of her own, though I admit I would prefer more stable meal times. So I wanted to see whether she was angry with me, but having a child is a great means of focusing on the here and now. The fact that the Prime Minister had resigned came a distant second to the fact our son had just rolled onto his tummy. Prime Ministers would come and go, but there would be only one time our boy developed this particular motor neuron skill. It'll be all right, won't it? 
Of course, she said, before wisely adding, maybe stay off social media today. Like most idiotic husbands, I said of course, then immediately checked social media. It was more of a scan than an in-depth evaluation, but the initial signs weren't good. Buzzwords included racist, stupid and you stole my child's future. Still, maybe they were just crabby because they hadn't drunk their first morning coffee. I was sure they'd chill out as the day went on. I did have a nagging concern. At this point, I wasn't aware of any other comedian who'd been quite so open about their intention to vote leave. Having hauled myself up to a decent living through writing comedy as well as performing in the clubs, I was now wondering if I'd comprehensively shot myself in the foot. The first thing I see when I enter the office is a producer crying in the kitchen, and I don't think it's because we've run out of Nespresso pods. All around, people are standing in hushed corners discussing things in a low voice. The atmosphere is heavy, funereal even. Voting to leave the EU has created a feeling like a relative has just died. In typically middle-class style, it's a relative they didn't talk about much until the last few months. A relative they didn't give much of a shit about until they felt there was a chance they might get written out of the will. I don't know how many of my immediate colleagues are aware I'm a Leave voter. Most circuit stand-ups would be, but in this context, I'm very much a writer, a joke monkey. I've written a few articles indicating my intention to vote for Brexit, but I doubt if anyone here has read them. So I decide to keep a low profile and just crack on with my work. The show I'm writing on is a dating panel show. It feels very odd to go from epoch-shaking news of our times to writing knob gags for Eamon Holmes. However, adversity has sharpened my mind. The first joke I write is, an Egyptian guy offered me 20 camels for my wife. I said, throw in the lighter and you've got yourself a deal. I know, right? In the same way Wilfred Owen found his voice in war, I appear to be hitting new heights as Britain thrashes itself free of continental rule. Having bashed out a number of gags easily of this gold standard, I log on to Facebook. Most of my feed features fellow comics and industry professionals. I'm hoping to get a sense of the mood, maybe a more level-headed reaction since the very early morning. This is Britain, right? Magnanimous in victory, magnificent in defeat. The very first post I read is from a stand-up colleague I once spent a whole week gigging with overseas, and it reads, So that's it then. Britain is a country of 17.4 million racists. My heart races. I look at the likes for this comment. It's already in the high hundreds. Foolishly, I decide to read exactly who has liked this comment. That peculiar impulse when something hasn't gone your way to roll the dice again even though the dice are on fire. The likes turn out to be almost exclusively people I know and have worked with. They've concurred with a sentiment which implicitly defines me as a racist. This can't be good for business, not in the comedy game. I wouldn't normally accord social media so much gravitas, but this is comedy. Facebook and Twitter represent our water cooler. I think about my son. It'll be odd explaining to him one day that I lost my job for voting in line with just over half the country. It might seem paranoid, but the moment racism becomes synonymous with a political decision, you're in trouble. You'd be more likely to keep a job in TV if you'd drunk driven and actually risked human life than if you used a racist term. Personally, I'd think it would be great if human beings didn't either. But if Ant McPartland had moaned down a person of colour when he was driving over the limit, the first thing ITV bosses would have asked is, what did he say as he was doing it? For a long time, political correctness gone mad has been mocked as a phrase, repeated ironically as a stick to beat the populists and reactionaries. It was true that there were absurd mythical stories of people banning Christmas or prohibiting anyone saying bar bar black sheep, but as the 2010s wore on, there were more and more examples of political correctness morphing into something much more unhinged. 
In Rochdale, the amount of time it took for authorities to believe victims of Asian grooming gangs suggested a hesitancy to get to grips with a potentially explosive issue. In 2004, Colin Cramphorn, the then Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police, demanded Channel 4 withdraw a documentary on the issue because it could trigger violence in a racially tense area. Journalist Julie Bindell was the first to report nationally on this issue and was, in her words, placed on Islamophobia Watch. The general reluctance of left-wing media to talk about this difficult issue created space for the far right to take full ownership. Political correctness couldn't just go mad, sometimes it could go certifiably insane. So I had my reasons to be worried. It had become commonplace to make an inextricable link between a leave vote and racism. Billy Bragg spoke with some nuance but a certainty that jarred with me. Not every leave voter is a racist, but every racist will vote leave. Fair enough but I'd argue there must have been at least one racist Remainer, perhaps someone who hated people from other countries, but also owned properties in France. Okay, just jumping back in there. Uh, that was, I still think that's a fair point, is that there must have been some uh, Remain racists that just love money so much that it actually trumped their racism. If you know any Remain racists, Remacists, um, email what most people think, uk at gmail.com. Uh, Anonymity insured. So this is this is a chapter from the book. Uh, I hope you're uh, enjoying it. You can get it. You can go on Amazon or, or Waterstones. You can get the hardback. Uh, you can get the paperback. You can get. I think there's usually a free trial on Audible. Where if you if you do it for a month, obviously it probably ties you in. So just keep an eye on that. If you're just getting that uh, for this book, and there's the Kindle version too, which I think is about five and a half quid or something like that. Um, at this point, you're listening to this. I will probably be in the last throws. Of, well, I'll probably be off my fucking nut in bit. Um, no, no, well, I've got a kid now. Sadly, not sadly, I've got a kid, but I mean sadly. Ah, I've got to take it easy. But um, I will be... Um, do you, the reason I paused there, my mind was going back to when, <laughs> when I could just absolutely cut loose. But I'll be uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival cutting loose from the 12th uh, to the 28th of August. And just another reminder is that I did uh, a radio comedy special called... If, if you're enjoying listening to me talk, although admittedly the audiobook, it's a weird pace of talking, isn't it? Because just a little inside info, I thought that I could go and just literally just read it like I was doing a monologue without any pauses. And um, it's fair to say that the producer had to pull me out of the booth and have a little word in my ear about how things are really done after I was doing about 15 fuck-ups per page. Uh, but yeah, if you like uh, listening to your comedy, go to BBC Sounds, Jeff Norcott, well classy, and there's a couple of Radio 4 comedy specials, uh, a couple of earlier ones there that you can listen to as well. Okay, let's get back to the book bit. I think I was talking about that very easy subject to discuss in comedy, which is uh, immigration. I did have a view on immigration, and several years later, it's still not one I've heard articulated much. I accept all the arguments about the positive things immigration has done for Britain, but I also find the freedom of movement idea a bit absolutist. The idea that any citizen of an EU country should be able to live and work without limit in fellow member states. The idea was nice, but unlimited in perpetuity seemed extreme to me. Even all-you-can-eat data has fair play limits. I didn't understand why nations shouldn't have a mechanism to adjust targets while they trained enough doctors, nurses and police to keep up with the rate of new arrivals. The problem with medics and law enforcement is they take a while to get up to speed. No one wants a crash course for doctors. The truth is my experience of immigration had been a positive one. 
When I was growing up in South London, it was around the time of a period of high influx from Asia, Africa and the Caribbean. Unlike many middle-class people throwing the term racist around, I actually had friends in those communities. Not just friends, even. The Asian family who lived upstairs at our first family home in Wimbledon became a surrogate family to me. They still are. It's always tricky to try and establish your non-racist credentials by pointing out the people close to you who aren't the same colour as you. The liberal left have come up with the derided, booby-trapped cliché, some of my best friends are black. Being friends with a black person doesn't entirely exonerate you of racism, but it's a decent start. I'd be more worried by someone who mocked that phrase but had a whiter friendship group than Hitler. The working classes have historically been on the front line of racial integration. Our kids are more likely to go to school with and marry outside of their community. We are statistically more likely to work with Eastern Europeans. We work in industries more likely to be threatened by wage competition like construction and factory work. What would the middle class reaction to immigration have been if the influx had been Romanian marketing gurus? Furthermore, the rhetoric Remainers started to adopt after the vote sounded more and more like the reductive xenophobia they claimed to despise. Who is going to pick the strawberries? Who will look after our children or work at Pret? All of which made the EU sound like less of a peacekeeping force for good and more like a production line of economic oompa lumpus. I lost count of the amount of times supposedly liberal friends would proudly tell me how they've stopped using British builders because Eastern European ones have such a great attitude. The attitude they seemed to be particularly fond of was doing jobs for less money. It's now lunchtime at the TV production company. I've had my head down writing jokes all morning, stealing nervous glances at the currency markets. We're shortly due to holiday in Disneyland Paris, and I'm anxiously looking at the value of the pound. My wife is one of those naturally smart people. A week before the vote, she said to me, don't forget to get euros, Jeff. If the vote goes leave, we'll get stung. The rest of the afternoon is pleasantly soporific. Whereas the morning saw adrenaline coursing through people's bodies and everyone you spoke to had their eyes out on stalks, the rest of the day is the exact opposite. It's amazing how much lunch can take the wind out of people's morning anger. On a primitive level, your most basic human fear for the day has been assuaged. Yes, we might crash the economy and housing market, but equally, I have a cheese sandwich in front of me, so I won't die of starvation. A win's a win. Even some of the more uptight people are now engaging in various shades of gallows humour. One of the assistant producers who'd been giving me evils in the morning notices my sandwiches come from Pret and says, Enjoy it, Jeff. You'll be making your own soon. I almost bite, but realise this is serious progress from earlier when she was looking at me like I was the bastard son of Farage. I suppressed the desire to point out that immigration was never going to completely stop because of Brexit. Instead, I waved the sandwich back at her. I wonder if she notices that it's plain cheese and if that confirms her opinion of me as one of the Little Englanders. The kind of guy who pulls up his socks with the same force he pulls up the ladder on economic migrants. These new layers to social awkwardness are only just beginning and I suspect they'll be with us for some time to come. As I leave the offices in Docklands, there seems to be a lot of people getting drunk in the sterile, soulless bars lining the route back to Canary Wharf. Fair enough, it's been a confusing day, and getting shit-faced is a sensibly British method of postponement. I look at a couple of the suits standing in the smoking area outside one bar. I can't tell if they're hammered already or just punch-drunk from a bewildering day. It's a hazy sort of summer evening too, which only adds to the general sense of discombobulation. I reflect on something a cultural pundit said on Sky News as I was having my lunch. He said that this was an attempt by people to stop the march of globalisation, to take the batteries out of the globalist clock. He also went on to some cliché bollocks about Little Englanders, but I wonder if his first point might have been valid, especially about me. 
I can't speak for all Leave voters, but did part of my vote come from a desire to hit that pause button? As I'd lost so many people and the world carried on heedlessly, maybe a part of me saw Brexit as a chance to slow that forward process. It wasn't on my mind when I voted, but it might have been under it. Jeff! Jeff! Someone appears to be calling my name. Given the atmosphere of reproach and recrimination, I shrug it off as the echoes of my own paranoia. It persists and I notice one of the heads of the production company is beckoning me into the bar to join her team for a drink. It's been a long day. I'm on the winning side, but success feels exhausting, so I accept the invite. The bar is heavy with motormouth chat and nervous laughter. The production head is holding court with a pleasant crew of TV minions. She talks brightly, trying to wave away the events of the day and theorising freely about Lee voters as these stupid people who believe things written on the side of buses. Ah, the advert on the bus. That famous claim printed on the side of Boris's tour bus that suggested we could use the 350 million we give to the EU per week to help fund the NHS. A very creative bit of advertising the likes of me was supposed to have fallen for hook, line and sinker. After one and a half pints and with no thought for my son's college fund, I decide to engage. I voted leave. I wasn't swayed by that bus. I then also add that it was clearly a coach. She's surprised more than angry. I guess she didn't expect on this day of all days to find any leavers in the metropolitan hotbed of terrestrial TV. The discussion plays out like many more I'll have in this vein, simmering, sometimes driven by the genuine spirit of inquiry, but mostly underscored by tension, like complaining to customer services but not going so far that you get cut off. I can't tell if my argument as to why I voted leave has placated or wound her up more. I try to lighten the mood by suggesting Remainers have got nothing to lose. If we leave and it turns out alright, you can enjoy the prosperity, but if it all goes tits up, you can dine out for the rest of your life on being proved right. In some ways, that's the most noble death for a Guardian reader. Getting to die saying I told you so. This glib comment does not land well. I look at my watch and shake my point as if to say, well, this one's done, best be on my way. Except it's very much not done. And beer splashes over the edges and forms a horrid urine-coloured pool in the corner of my open bag of crisps. She says with genuine good intent, ah, Jeff, you're one of the okay ones. It occurs to me that the only other time I've heard this phrase is when racists are deciding who is alright and who isn't. But this really isn't the time to split linguistic hairs and I'm not sure comparing my unease to the race struggle is wise at this point. Plus I've still got that three month old son I need to provide for. As I'm fumbling with my things getting ready to go, the colleague who flashed me the morning evils said, aren't you going to Disneyland soon? That's going to cost a bit more. I should have countered that point by calling holidays a preoccupation of the liberal elite that democracy and sovereignty are more important than how many times they get to hit the slopes this year. But at that very moment, I remember that I didn't change up those euros like my wife suggested. This is turning out to be a very challenging day. Okay, so there it was, chapter 11 from Where Did I Go Right, uh, the chapter about Brexit. It did just occur to me there that if you happen to be listening to this in a queue for a port somewhere, you might have just... I don't know, just thrown your fucking iPhone uh, at, at the wall. This is turning out to be a very challenging day. It's something you've probably experienced. But uh, but yeah, do go and download that uh, if you can. I said uh, letters. I said I'd do some letters. There, there are no letters at this point. So let's talk about... Uh, let's do some uh, five-star review. <laughs> Sorry, reviews. Uh, you know, if you can leave reviews, do five-star ones. We haven't done a, any of these for a while. So this one's from Brixton Breaker. So if you're from Brixton, mate, you're probably talking a little bit like that. But no matter what colour you are, this is the South London 
way of talking. Love the longer length episode, perfect for a five mile walk. Uh, wondered if you call what Ben Elton did on Saturday Night Live a rant or is what Jack Whitehall did something different? That is an excellent point. Uh, we were talking about rants in the episode with uh, Sean Walsh. Yeah, I would absolutely, I fucking forgot about that. Great point. Uh, this is from Burn1222. Burn. Sounds like a burn. I don't know what voice you'd have. Sounds like maybe a dodgy copper from the 70s. Always funny and interesting. You'll be laughing and nodding throughout. Not like a mentalist at a bus stop. More like your mates at the pub when you're passing off Jeff opinions as your own. Were you fucking stealing? You're stealing my opinions there, bro. But uh, no, no, do feel free uh, to, to quote my opinions. This is what we call, I think, in uh, international politics, soft power, you know? I'm trying to throw in some jokes, but really uh, this podcast is about a weird form of centre-right, fiscally conservative, socially liberal uh, indoctrination. But anyway, look, I I hope you're having a good week. I hope you enjoyed uh, this particular unusual episode of What Most People Think, but we'll be back with a normal one next week. See you then.